Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer and this is the 1848 Famine Rebellion. 1848 was a year of revolt and rebellion all across Europe and Ireland was no different, something that was hardly surprising given the horrors of the Great Hunger. While the Famine Rebellion has been overshadowed by the much larger 1798 Rebellion and the 1916 Rising, it is a fascinating if forgotten story. In this podcast we take a journey through radical politics in Ireland, tracing the origins of the Famine Revolt in the extreme violence of the 1798 rebellion and the pacifism of Daniel O'Connell's repeal movement. Along the way, we will encounter some of 19th century Ireland's most controversial revolutionaries, from John Mitchell to William Smith O'Brien, in what is a fascinating story haunted by the spectre of the Great Famine. This podcast also gives us a chance to take a proper look at how Ireland's political leaders reacted to the Great Hunger, which reveals a story of Machiavellian deals and betrayal. This is done by focusing in on the story of a very ordinary rebel in 1848, a man called Martin Ryan, and we begin in his hometown of Cashel. Before starting, I want to acknowledge some of the sources I used. Even though it took place during the Great Famine, the 1848 Rebellion is one of the least understood revolts in Irish history, and when I was researching it, I found it difficult to find histories that interwove the story of the Rebellion with the history of the Great Hunger. There's a tendency to focus exclusively on the Rebellion without looking at the context of the Famine. As is so often the case, it is that great historian of the Great Hunger, Christine Keneally, who provides the most illuminating account in her book Repeal and Rebellion, 1848 in Ireland. If you want to read more about this topic, I can't recommend that book enough. And finally, before we kick off, I want to acknowledge the amazing support and generosity of listeners who have become patrons. Without them, there would be no Irish History podcast, so thanking them is, in many ways, 
one of the most important aspects of the show. The support of patrons is essential. This episode took somewhere in the region of 100 hours to make and that's only possible because of patrons. Now patrons, if you don't know, are listeners just like you who support the podcast by signing up at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. In return for this support, you get early access to the show, episode guides and exclusive podcasts. The most recent Patrons podcast released just two weeks ago was a recording from my live show at the Dublin Podcast Festival and the topic then was Our Cannibal Ancestors Survival During the Great Famine. I really enjoyed that show and that's available on Patreon with lots of other bonus content now. Each week I like to thank a few patrons personally as well and today I want to thank Tara Flynn, Tamika Sinclair, Tara Adcock, The Jackie and Laurie Show, MJ Brody, Reg Cooper, Mrs M Costello, Nancy Lester, Orla Mateer, Orla McElveen, Padraig Ruan and Pam Binger Soyne. Now we begin the story of the 1848 rebellion in the ancient town of Cashel in County Tipperary in the early 19th century. Born outside the South Tipperary town of Cashel in 1823, Martin Ryan grew up, strange as it may sound, surrounded by the distant past. It wasn't so much that his ancestors had ever achieved anything much of note, but anyone born in Cashel couldn't escape the historical significance of their hometown. The iconic Rock of Cashel, an enormous rocky outcrop crowned with medieval buildings, not only dominated the town, but also the landscape for several miles in all directions. For Martin, who was born in Hughes Lot East, a mile to the east of Cashel, the evening skyline was dominated by this remarkable spot. The rock is one of Ireland's most famous sites, not only because it is striking in appearance, but it has also played host to some of the most pivotal moments in Irish history through the centuries. According to folklore, St. Patrick had reputedly converted the King of Munster to Christianity at the rock back in the early medieval period. While the provenance of this tale is questionable, there's no doubt that the rock was an important site. Known as Cashel of the Kings, it emerged in the earliest written histories as the seat of the ancient kings of Munster. Its purpose and role, however, changed over the centuries. In 1101, the great-grandson of the famous High King Brian Boru, Morkertok O'Brien, granted it to the church. In the following decades, they constructed the large cathedral on the rock which dominates the skyline. However, by the time Martin Ryan was born in the 1820s, the rock had taken on a forlorn and lonely appearance. This was, in a somewhat ironic twist, partly due to the actions of another descendant of Brian Boru, the fourth baron in Chiquin, Murrah O'Brien, who sacked Cashel in a notorious massacre in 1647. By the 19th century, the rock was a ruin, its cathedral stripped of its roof, lying open to the elements. However, ruinous as it was, it continued to dominate the surrounding landscape for miles in all directions, and the bare stone walls, window frames long devoid of glass, and high gables reached into the skyline, creating an evocative, captivating silhouette on Cashel's skyline, one enhanced by the history and folklore attached to the site. This gave Cashel a symbolic value which far outweighed the importance of what was a relatively small provincial town, and during Martin Ryan's own lifetime it continued to be immensely important, 
as Irish political leaders of each generation returned to Cashel in an attempt to use the history to legitimise new political movements. Indeed, in 1834, when Martin Ryan was just a boy, around 50,000 Catholics had turned out to a protest meeting against the payment of tithes, a tax to fund the Protestant church. However, the largest gathering in Cashel's long history came nine years later when Martin turned 20. On that occasion, somewhere in the region of a quarter of a million people attended a demonstration in the shade of the iconic ruin demanding political change in Ireland. That year, 1843, promised the greatest change Ireland had seen in decades. It was called the Repeal Year, when finally the Act of Union seemed like it would be overturned. By the early 1840s, Ireland had struggled under legislation known as the Act of Union for four decades. The Act, which had come into effect in 1801, had seen Ireland subsumed into the United Kingdom. The Irish Parliament, which sat in Dublin, was closed and Ireland was relegated to the status of a province ruled directly from London. By the 1840s, the disastrous impact many predicted would result from this move had come to fruition. Treated like a provincial backwater of London, Ireland had slipped into a deep recession. For Martin Ryan's generation, who had been born after the Act of Union came into effect and had known nothing else, the prospect of its repeal promised a new future. And by the early summer of 1843, this seemed within reach. The movement to win change was going from strength to strength under the leadership of Daniel O'Connell, a figure who towered over early 19th century life in Ireland. Indeed, the presence of this man, Daniel O'Connell, at the meeting held at Cashel was part of the reason so many had attended. For the likes of Martin Ryan, the chance to see this man, known as the Liberator, in the flesh was not to be missed. O'Connell was the closest thing to a celebrity in the 1840s. He was unquestionably the most famous Irish person alive. But O'Connell was also a deeply complex figure that in many ways symbolised the political turmoil Martin Ryan and his generation would face in the coming years. While he seemed to promise great change, he also symbolised the conservative attitudes of an older generation which seemed somewhat out of touch to a younger generation of which Martin Ryan belonged. Daniel O'Connell had gained an almost godlike status in Ireland after he spearheaded the successful campaign for Catholic emancipation, which granted Catholics equal rights under the law. Given around 80% of the island's population were Catholic, this was seen as a major milestone. It was due to this victory in 1829 that O'Connell had become known simply as the Liberator. However, O'Connell is a somewhat misunderstood figure today. While considered to be the founding father of Irish nationalism, he did not really believe in Irish independence. In fact, O'Connell supported the British Empire. His goal was to alter Ireland's relationship, and in particular the relationship of Ireland's Catholics, to that empire. For him, repealing the Act of Union was an essential step. This would see a parliament in Dublin gain control over several aspects of Irish society. While O'Connell's movement, known as the Loyal Repeal Association, seemed unstoppable as quarter of a million people flooded into Cashel in 1843, within a few months it slammed headlong into a brick wall. The key moment for the repeal movement arrived when O'Connell organised another mass meeting, this time choosing Clontarf outside Dublin as a location. Clontarf was where the High King of Ireland, Brian Boru, had defeated the Vikings back in 1014. 
While the actual history of this battle was very different, it is often conceptualised in semi-mythological terms as an early blow for Irish freedom. Now the British authorities in Dublin were increasingly concerned about the growing power of the repeal movement and they banned the meeting, bringing troops into the city and warned O'Connell if he went ahead there would be bloodshed. This was a decisive moment and O'Connell, who was ideologically committed to constitutional, non-violent tactics, backed down in the face of these threats. This would prove to be a major defeat for the repeal movement and while it would remain vibrant for years to come, this moment nonetheless proved decisive. O'Connell's commitment to non-violence, while a laudable sentiment, had no answer when the British government was unwilling to listen to the demands of the people. Internally, this would have huge ramifications. Indeed, divisions over the use of exclusively constitutional means would prove essential in bringing about the 1848 rebellion. These developments began when the younger generation of activists, the political leaders of Martin Ryan's generation, were increasingly disillusioned by these events. While they admired O'Connell, some were also influenced by political leaders such as the Republican leaders of the 1790s like Wolf Tone who had advocated a fully independent republic through rebellion if needs be. Indeed the key difference that would prove so important in the build up to the famine rebellion in 1848 was understood in how two generations, that O'Connell on the one hand and the younger generation people like Martin Ryan, on the other, viewed the 1798 rebellion because they had diametrically opposed understanding of this key event. Now to get to the 1848 rebellion, we need to take a step back first of all into history and look at the 1798 rebellion. Seventeen ninety eight had witnessed the largest republican uprising in Irish history, but also the bloodiest by a good margin. While no one knows an exact number for sure, tens of thousands of people had been killed. The rebellion itself was extremely violent with numerous massacres taking place. However, it was also followed by a brutal counter-revolution which saw the population terrorised and the legacy of this haunted society for decades. The best way to understand this and its legacy is to return to Martin Ryan's hometown of Cashel. On July the 18th, 1798, a court-martial of three rebels James Hearn, Matthew Ryan and Innocent Cahill took place in Cashel. The three men were found guilty and sentenced to death. While they were hanged shortly afterwards, the gruesome spectacle for the townspeople had only begun. After they were executed, the three were cut down, their bodies decapitated and their heads brought back to Cashel and put on display for all to see. This atrocity was a stark and brutal warning to would-be rebels of the price they would pay. For weeks, maybe months in late 1798, Martin Ryan's grandparents and other townsfolk of Cashel had to walk by these decaying heads. Scenes like this, and indeed far worse, were carried out in communities across Ireland. This wave of terror permeated deep into the psyche of the wider population. As late as the 1930s, when the Folklore Commission collected stories from the town of Care, only a few miles from Cashel, the people were still telling stories of three men hanged from a bridge in the town in 1798. There was no question that the wider populace were scarred and indeed scared into abeyance by this wave of counter-revolutionary terror. While there would be further outbreaks of violence in the coming decades, they were largely clandestine. Few dared to advocate an open rebellion given the horrendous costs involved. In this environment, it was hardly any surprise that Daniel O'Connell, 
a man who believed in exclusively constitutional methods, found widespread support among those who remembered the rebellion or were born in the immediate aftermath. This was a generation keen to avoid open conflict with the British government. However, by the 1840s, Martin Ryan and his generation saw politics and the 1798 rebellion in very different terms. The rebellion for them was in the long distant past. In Martin Ryan's case, it had ended 25 years before he was born. The fear of retribution from the British authorities had faded with the memories of that rebellion. In fact, the younger generation saw the rebellion as a source of inspiration. Thomas Francis Marr, who would go on to be a leading revolutionary in 1848, a man the exact same age as Martin Ryan, said for his generation, the blood which drenched the scaffolds of 1798 had spurred them on rather than deterred them. The younger generation were by no means as committed to constitutional means as their forebearers were. These profoundly different understandings of the past and the tensions that emerged from them would prove very, very important, particularly after O'Connell backed down at Clontarf in 1843. It was increasingly clear to the younger generation that he would struggle to deliver a repeal of the Act of Union as long as the British government were refusing to engage with him. However, while this difference provided important foundations for the rebellion to come, before the Great Hunger, few were pushing for a rebellion. It was the Great Famine which would prove an essential catalyst in propelling this event. The onset of the Great Famine changed life for every single Irish person, whether they were directly affected or not. Martin Ryan's hometown of Cashel in South Tipperary was heavily impacted. In 1846, a deputation from the town begged the Lord Lieutenant for aid, stating that 5,000 of the 9,000 people living in or around the town were paupers. Cashel, like most towns, went on to suffer terrible trauma in the coming years. By 1851, the town's population had fallen by 33%. For Martin Ryan, who was 23, by 1846, this loss affected him personally. He lived in Hughes Lot East, just outside Cashel. In 1841, there had been 61 people living in this small area. By 1851, this had fallen to 43 people. Whether through death or emigration, the impact was deeply traumatic. These were Martin Ryan's friends, his neighbours, perhaps even his family members who had died or in the case of emigration, left with the chance of them ever returning slim. Given he was not a wealthy man, we can also assume Martin would have been affected by hunger and perhaps disease as well. These experiences must have had a profound impact on him. Indeed, by 1848, Martin Ryan would find himself an active revolutionary. But to explain how this happened, we need to first leave Cashel and Martin Ryan's story temporarily and look at how the mainstream repeal movement reacted to the Great Famine. Because this was not how you might imagine it. The initial onset of the Great Famine in 1845 had a surprisingly limited impact on Irish politics. The appearance of blight and the failure of the potato crop that year by no means radicalised or pushed the population towards rebellion. Food shortages were frequent occurrences in the early 19th century, so the situation facing Ireland in late 1845 was not considered that unusual. While it was known this would result in increased hardships and hunger, no one could still foresee what lay ahead. 
It was only the devastating failure of the harvest of 1846 which transformed these shortages into the unprecedented catastrophe of the Great Hunger, leaving millions facing starvation. The general reaction of Irish members of Parliament in the House of Commons to the onset of famine after that failure of the harvest in 1846, however, left a lot to be desired. Now, in total, there were around 40 or so Irish MPs who favoured repeal of the Act of Union, and these are the people we might expect to argue the case for Ireland. But they adopted what could be described at best a very naive approach. Led by the 71-year-old Daniel O'Connell, who it should be said was considered by many to be losing his touch, the Irish MPs were unable to adapt to the crisis and remained wedded to the political landscape of the pre-famine era. Traditionally, the repeal politicians despised the Conservative Party and were in general sympathetic to the Liberal Party. In the 1820s and 30s, this had made some sense. The Conservatives were implacably opposed to any reform in Ireland, while the Liberals, theoretically at least, seemed open to change. Keeping with this strategy, the Irish repealed politicians helped to bring down the Conservative government in the summer of 1846. However, they then went a step further, essentially becoming kingmakers in the British Parliament. The Liberal Party lacked the numbers to form a minority government, but O'Connell backed their administration, bringing them to power. Now, in return for this, Daniel O'Connell had secured promises of reforms for Ireland, but these were not guarantees and, crucially, they did not include a repeal of the Act of Union. When news of this reached Ireland, to many it seemed O'Connell had caved in and stepped back from his demand of repeal. The younger members of the repeal movement, already believing O'Connell was out of touch, saw this as a betrayal. To make matters worse, O'Connell's support and belief in the Liberal Party was totally ill-founded. Their famine relief measures influenced by their free market dogmas were disastrous. O'Connell's decision to back the Liberals as the famine moved into its most deadly phase accelerated changes towards politics in Ireland. This set in train a process that would lead directly to the 1848 rebellion. But next, I want to look at a few important factors that were falling into place but that are essential for a rebellion to take place. Popular revolutions are complicated and relatively rare events in history. Successful ones are even rarer still. Regardless of the specific reasons that push people into revolt, they are more likely to take place in certain societies than others. For example, historians have noted that the three most far-reaching and successful revolutions in European history, in what might be called modern times, the English Revolution of the 1640s, the French Revolution of the 1780s and the Russian Revolution of 1917, all took place in societies where literacy was approaching or above 50%. This is not a coincidence. Literacy allows for the spread of radical ideas. In Ireland, this key factor was already in place before the Great Famine. The 1841 census had revealed the Irish to be a pretty literate population. Nearly half of those aged over five years could at least read. And of those who were aged over the age of 15, the basic level of literacy increased to 53%. When the radical newspaper The Nation launched in 1842, it was able to garner an estimated readership of one million people in this relatively literate society, and it even penetrated into the most remote parts of the island. Jeremiah O'Donovan Rossa, a native of Skibbereen and a future Fenian, would later recall his childhood in this West Cork town, 200 miles from Dublin. 
I remember on Sundays how I'd sit for hours in the workshop of Mick Hurley, the carpenter, at the lower side of Pound Square, listening to Patrick Cohan reading the Nation newspaper for the men who were members of the club. The spread of this newspaper would prove crucial to the rebellion of 1848. Now another important feature of a society where rebellions emerge is a government completely out of touch with the mood of the people. And in the late 1840s, the British government were extraordinarily out of touch with the mood on the ground in Ireland. Lord Palmerston, the Foreign Secretary and the future Prime Minister, had illustrated this when he reflected on the 1847 election, which saw a huge surge in support for candidates who favoured a repeal of the Act of Union. I see that almost all of the Irish elections have gone in favour of repeal candidates. And this is after two or three million of the Irish have been saved from famine and pestilence by money, which, if the Union had not existed, their own Parliament would never have been able to raise. This is not natural. In Ireland, however, people saw the situation very differently. They saw the likes of Palmerston as to blame, whereas he genuinely thought that people in Ireland should be grateful to him. Indeed, it was not long after this that the Nation newspaper better reflected the mood of the day when it referred to famine deaths as massacres directly attributable to the likes of Palmerston and his colleagues. The gap between the British government of the day and the people on the ground was also central to pushing some people at least towards rebellion. Now while these key factors created an increasingly tense society in Ireland, one essential component was still lacking. This was an organisation who would agitate and organise for a revolution. And before we return to the story of our rebel, that's Martin Ryan in Cashel, we need to look at who was pushing for a rebellion in Ireland in the late 1840s. Strange as it might sound, the revolutionary movement that Martin Ryan found himself part of in the summer of 1848 had emerged as a result of a newspaper, or at least as a result of the people who coalesced around the newspaper than anything else. This newspaper was The Nation, which had been established in 1842 in support of Daniel O'Connell's Loyal Repeal Association. The paper, however, was founded by Charles Gavin Duffy, Thomas Davis and John Blake Dillon, who were all around 30 at the time and much, much younger than Daniel O'Connell, and in general were far more radical. Over time, The Nation began to attract in other similar minds, the most important of whom was a man called John Mitchell. While O'Connell was an almost godlike figure in some respects, to those around the Nation newspaper, he increasingly seemed past his prime and somewhat out of touch. O'Connell, for his part, saw them as young radicals, rash and unpragmatic. He was endearingly referred to as Old Ireland and they would be labelled as Young Ireland or the Young Irelanders. The difference between the two, though, was not just about their age or the generations to which they belonged. There was also significant political differences. The Young Irelanders, for example, believed that any successful movement that would see a repeal of the Act of Union would and indeed should include Protestants. Leading Young Irelanders John Mitchell and William Smith O'Brien were both Protestants. Daniel O'Connell, for his part, however, showed little interest in reaching out to their communities. In terms of strategy, Old Ireland and Young Ireland also varied massively. As we have seen, O'Connell had always opposed the use of anything other than constitutional methods to oppose the British government. The Young Irelanders, while members of O'Connell's repeal association, were very different. Led by individuals like the MP and landlord William Smith O'Brien, incidentally another descendant of Brian Boru, John Mitchell, 
Michael Doheny and Thomas Francis Maher, they had no memory of 1798 and the repression that followed it. While they were not ideologically committed to a rebellion by any means, neither were they opposed to it in the way O'Connell was. For them, it was just a tactic that might be employed if needed. However, it is important to say that the Young Irelanders were not revolutionaries by any means in 1846 or indeed even 1847. Now the myriad of tensions between O'Connell's Old Ireland and the Young Irelanders came to a head in the summer of 1846 as O'Connell went to extraordinary lengths to support the Liberal government. While he had backed them in Parliament so they would have enough numbers to form a government, he had even made a repeal candidate stand aside to allow the Liberals take what would otherwise have been a safe repeal seat in a Waterford by-election. The Young Irelanders were outraged by this. Although still a faction in the repeal association, they openly attacked this strategy in the pages of the nation and O'Connell decided the time had come to phase down his rivals. He did this through something called the Peace Resolutions in the Repeal Association. These essentially demanded members of the association pledged to exclusively constitutional, non-violent methods. While this might seem innocent enough, this was pure politicking on the part of O'Connell to force out the Young Irelanders. No one at the time was advocating violence. Indeed, one of the most militant Young Irelanders, John Mitchell, said he had no intention in the world of going to war himself or inciting anybody else to do so. However, in placing these motions before the association, O'Connell knew the Young Irelanders would not agree to pacifism as a principle. They saw it in purely tactical terms. The peace resolutions were debated in the association over the summer of 1846 in what was a wide-ranging and increasingly bitter debate. Amid fiery discussions fuelled by an extremely high-handed approach from John O'Connell, that's Daniel O'Connell's son, the Young Irelanders, led by William Smith O'Brien, eventually walked out. Initially, this was seen as a bitter dispute rather than a split, but it quickly became toxic. John O'Connell, that's Daniel O'Connell's son who I've just mentioned, was an extremely divisive figure in this. He labelled the Young Irelanders as infidels. Now that must have been extremely provocative to the likes of William Smith O'Brien and John Mitchell, who were both Protestants in a movement that was largely Catholic. With the split increasingly seeming irreparable, the Young Irelanders would go on to form their own rival organisation to O'Connell's Repeal Association. This was called the Irish Confederation, which would in time garner considerable support. The split and the growing tensions between these two wings of the repeal movement would prove essential in terms of developing a revolutionary situation. The Young Irelanders were unquestionably the most dynamic individuals and through their control of the newspaper The Nation, they could reach huge audiences. However, it is worth bearing in mind that in the aftermath of the split, they were still by no means a revolutionary movement and were not advocating for a rebellion. However, freed from the conservative break of the O'Connells, in the Repeal Association and living in an Ireland being ravaged by the Great Famine, some of their members began to espouse increasingly radical views which resonated with large numbers of people. In the coming 12 months they began to struggle with O'Connell's loyal Repeal Association for influence and dominance over the Irish population. While their support waxed and waned, the growth of the Young Irelanders was halted in the summer of 1847 when Daniel O'Connell himself died in May. This led to a massive outpouring of grief. Many of O'Connell's supporters tried to blame the Young Irelanders for O'Connell's death and this did see a temporary surge in support for, for O'Connell's followers. John O'Connell, who organised his father's funeral, even banned Young Irelanders from attending. 
However, in the long run, the younger O'Connell was a pale imitation of his father and squandered the goodwill that emerged from the death of the Liberator. And in the coming months, an increasingly bitter conflict between these two factions often turned physical. At a meeting in Belfast in November 1847, two pit bull dogs were unleashed on the young Irelander William Smith O'Brien when he tried to speak. A few months later, supporters of O'Connell would try and use battering rams to force entry to a Young Ireland reception in Limerick. It was a somewhat ironic twist that these were the same people who supposedly represented the pacifist wing of the movement. At the same time, under John O'Connell's leadership, the Repeal Association, the moderates who followed in Daniel O'Connell's footsteps, were if anything becoming more and more conservative. It seemed they had completely abandoned the demand for repeal and worse still, they continued to support the Liberal government which was inflicting so much hardship on the Irish people. Indeed, in December 1847, John O'Connell even voted for extremely draconian legislation to crack down on lawlessness in Ireland. After this, he was a hated man in many eyes. The Lord Lieutenant of the day reflected on the situation as Christmas approached in 1847. Young Ireland is very popular. The people of Dublin are all forgetting the wonderful advantages they have been promised by force. And if John O'Connell had come over the day after the Crime Prevention Bill was introduced, he would have been murdered for having sold his country. However, while many saw O'Connell as having betrayed them, and this opened huge space for the increasingly radical Young Irelanders, they were still unsure of what strategy to pursue. There was no doubt that repeal of the Act of Union made more sense now than it had before given the terrible policies the British government were enacting during the famine. However, some in the movement were now increasingly looking towards more radical solutions than just repealing the Act of Union. While leading figures like William Smith O'Brien and Charles Gavin Duffy were supportive of repeal, others were formulating more radical demands. John Mitchell and a man called Michael Doheny were increasingly influenced by the ideas of James Finton Lawler, who argued for a form of social revolution. By early 1848, they were calling for an end to landlordism and a complete reformation of Irish society. However, even they themselves were never entirely sure about how this could be achieved. They were not the Russian Bolsheviks of 1917 who had a clear plan on how they should take power and what they would do when they achieved this power. The radicals of 1848 were more drifting towards rebellion rather than consciously planning out how it would happen. In January 1848, divisions in the Young Ireland movement emerged when John Mitchell proposed that the movement should adopt a more radical programme. This was opposed by the moderates I mentioned earlier, people like William Smith O'Brien, who was himself a landlord. O'Brien and the moderates won the day in this debate aided by that often-used anti-democratic chestnut of threatening to resign if things didn't go their way. However, this didn't lead to any more moderate politics. This was happening in an Ireland that was starving to death. Huge numbers of people wanted something radical to happen. However, the defeat of the radicals did not lead to more moderate politics. It just unfettered Mitchell from the moderation of William Smith O'Brien, much in the way the Young Irelanders had been released from the Conservative politics of O'Connell over a year earlier. After being defeated in the vote on his radical programme, John Mitchell stepped back from the leadership, becoming just an ordinary member of the Irish Confederation. He also left the editorial board of the nation, and within days he had established a new newspaper called The United Irishman. This was a clear statement of intent invoking the spirit of 1798, 
the United Irishmen were the people who had organised that rebellion. Now this newspaper, pushing its radical ideas, combined with the famine and the explosive international situation, would push Ireland to the brink of rebellion within a couple of months. First, we'll take a quick break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The month of February 1848 proved to be crucial. John Mitchell published his first newspaper on February the 12th and the contents were increasingly radical and provocative. He directly challenged the Lord Lieutenant, the Earl of Clarendon, daring him to clamp down and signed off his articles, I remain your enemy, John Mitchell. Then less than two weeks later, a major revolt took place in France on February the 24th. This was successful, deposing the French King Louis-Philippe, providing a clear example of a successful rebellion. This ramped up tension not only in Ireland but across Europe. In the following months, numerous revolutions took place in other parts of the continent. This had a huge impact in Ireland, acting as a catalyst across the island. The situation was clearly sliding towards rebellion, although there were still no clear plans of how or when it would take place. Nevertheless, the increasing radicalisation was reflected in the Nation newspaper which proclaimed to its readers on the day after St. Patrick's Day 1848. France sways Europe now more absolutely, 
but to a far different purpose than she did in the days of Charlemagne or Saint-Louis. Look upon the progress of this Parisian movement, ye rulers of Ireland. Light of head, hard of heart as ye are, and learn how electric is the progress of a brave deed done for freedom. It's also worth bearing in mind that Ireland was greatly disturbed with localised and sporadic outbreaks of violence resulting from the famine at this point. The number of police reports of arson increased dramatically. From 51 in January and February, these rose to 109 in May. The country, where revolution seemed inconceivable even a year previously, now seemed on the verge of a rebellion. However, the method and even the demand was still vague. Would it be a rebellion to force a repeal of the Act of Union or would it be more radical? No one seemed to know. The leaders of the Young Ireland movement were in many ways unwilling revolutionaries and you get the sense that they were being swept along by the tide rather than attempting to engineer a revolutionary situation. Nevertheless, the Young Irelanders were growing in influence with an estimated 40,000 members and while its leaders were apprehensive about taking action, circumstance soon forced their hand. As the Young Irelanders were increasingly radicalised, the British authorities grew more and more concerned. The revolt in France was an example of what could happen. By May, rebellion in Ireland now seemed inevitable. It was being talked about openly. The plan was still vague, almost non-existent, but it generally seemed to be agreed that the best time was October. The harvest looked like it was going to be a bumper crop that year, so a rebellion earlier would only risk what would be the best famine relief measure, that is, gathering a successful harvest. The British government, in response to this potential rebellion, hatched plans for a counter-revolution. And it should be said that in Irish society there was considerable support for this among certain sections. The Orange Order, a deeply conservative Protestant movement that numbered in the tens of thousands, was opposed to any form of increased autonomy for Ireland and they were willing to violently repress any rebellion. As early as March 1848, they offered themselves to the Lord Lieutenant as a militia to support the police and the army. The Earl of Clarendon initially refused, commenting, I need only to hold up my finger to have 50,000 orange men in arms. However, he recognised there would be, in his words, traces of blood and sectarian hate that our grandchildren would not see effaced. He even went on to describe the Orange Order as quite as subversive of law and order as the priests and young Irelandism. However, within two months, he was making preparations to arm this very same Orange Order. This was extremely dangerous, but it illustrated that the British government would repeat the horrors of the 1798 rebellion if they had to. In April 1848, the British government launched their assault on the Young Ireland movement. To this end, they passed specific legislation known as the Treason Felony Bill, and in May they charged John Mitchell with sedition and William Smith O'Brien and Thomas Francis Marr were charged with making seditious speeches. While Thomas Francis Marr and William Smith O'Brien were tried first and acquitted, the main affair was John Mitchell's court case, who was going to be tried for sedition. While it attracted massive press attention, the government took no chances with Mitchell, selecting a jury of conservative Protestants. Indeed, Mitchell had little or no chance. Even the judge was a member of the Orange Order. John Mitchell was found guilty and sentenced to 14 years transportation, a brutal punishment that was seen by many as unduly severe. Transportation would see Mitchell shipped to the far side of the world to serve his sentence. 
The government wasted no time in getting this man they considered as extremely dangerous out of the country. On June 1st, he was shipped to Bermuda and he would never, ever set foot in Ireland again. The man who had arguably done more than any other to bring about a rebellion in Ireland would now play no further part in the story. However, when news of his sentence spread through the country, it caused outrage. If the government hoped it would calm the situation, it was soon very clear it would have the opposite effect. While there was unified anger across much of Ireland, some 10,000 people marched in an armed demonstration through London. Meanwhile, during the early summer, the Young Ireland movement was expanding at a massive rate. New groups were being set up across the country. They also began to arm, while pledges of abstinence from alcohol were also sworn until after the harvest when they would rebel. Politics in Ireland was clearly now moving to the brink. The government responded by imposing curfews in numerous counties, including County Tipperary. And next, we're going to return to the South Tipperary town of Cashel, which was pretty close to the epicentre of the unfolding rebellion. On July the 10th, 1848, the radical young Irelander Michael Doheny made his way to Cashel. Doheny knew this part of the country well. He was a native of the town of Feathered, just a few miles to the southeast of Cashel. And it was in Cashel that Doheny had enjoyed one of the greatest moments of his political career. Back in 1843, he had been the brains behind Daniel O'Connell's enormous meeting, which attracted 250,000 people. However, those days were long past by 1848. Doheny had broken with O'Connell in 1846, along with the other Young Irelanders. And by 1848, he was a very different man. He had arrived in anticipation of a meeting that was to be held at the mountain of Shliavnaman, where he was not only the organiser, but he was now one of the key speakers, along with another radical, Thomas Francis Maher. The demands now were very different than they had been in 1843, as Ireland was moving inexorably toward a rebellion, and Doheny was one of the central figures in this. While it was still unclear when and even how it would happen, events were moving very fast. However, not long after Doheny arrived in Cashel, he was arrested for making a seditious speech in the wave of counter-revolutionary repression sweeping the country. But in the highly tense situation, this proved enough to spark a major riot. As Doheny was led away by the police, a large crowd gathered and they then subsequently stormed the jail where he was being held and successfully freed the young Irelander. The crowd, however, had never thought to ask Doheny whether he wanted to be freed. And when he was broken free, he finally managed to inform his rescuers that he did not want to spend the coming weeks on the run as an escaped convict when he knew he would be bailed in any case in a few days and then he could legally travel the countryside organising the Young Ireland movement. So it was the riot ended by returning Doheny to his jail cell where it had all began. However, this bizarre incident was indicative of tensions across Ireland. While we can never know for certain if Martin Ryan was among the mob who freed Doheny, given what he would end up doing in the coming 10 days, it seems pretty likely. Now Michael Doheny's strategy of returning to prison so he could be bailed was very effective and while he was taken to the town of Ross Grey, he returned to Cashel on July the 16th for the meeting at Schlievenaman. On that occasion he was welcomed by a rapturous crowd of thousands and they set out for the mountain just 25 kilometres away where the meeting was due to be held. While falling short of the quarter of a million people Daniel O'Connell had drawn at Cashel in 1843, 
The fact some 50,000 people attended in the midst of the worst famine in modern Irish history was impressive. The mood at the meeting was defiant and militant. Doheny urged the crowd on with words that must have resonated in ways that would be difficult for us to understand today. Speaking first from the platform, he, unlike many of his federal radicals, had been born a poor peasant. And he asked what must have been electrifying words. Will you continue to beg and starve? He was followed on the podium by Thomas Francis Marr, who bluntly asked, Your fields waved with golden grain. It's not for you. Marr here was alluding to the fact that massive exports of food had continued throughout the famine. The speeches also alluded to an armed rebellion that was near. The Young Ireland leaders knew that holding off the rising under the harvest was now impossible. The day following the Schlievenamon meeting, they elected a council of five who essentially would oversee what was now an imminent rebellion. While the moderate William Smith O'Brien was not a member, he was increasingly moving towards supporting a rebellion. However, even though they finally appeared to be acting decisively, the Young Irelanders were never really able to dictate the pace of events. The authorities and indeed the general mood in society was forcing them into action. Indeed, on July the 22nd, the radical journalist James Finton Lawler, who had established his own newspaper called The Felon, was asking his readers, who will strike the first blow for Ireland? The following day, Martin Ryan from Cashel, who we met earlier, now at the age of 25, was among the first to answer this call. The day after James Finton Lawler penned that article asking who would strike a blow for Ireland, Martin Ryan was taking decisive action by readying his weapons. Late on Sunday the 23rd, Martin was returning home through the fields to his house carrying a long blade. This in itself was illegal. Ireland could scarcely have been more tense and the entire island was under a curfew, while Tipperary had long been subjected to stringent rules about carrying illegal weapons. At about 4am, Martin, making his way to his house, stepped out from a field onto a by-road, but suddenly found himself surrounded by policemen and soldiers less than two feet away. By pure coincidence, they had been on patrol, spotted him in the fields and then lay in wait for him. Martin hadn't seen them. While breaking the curfew wasn't the worst of crimes, Martin was hard-pressed now to explain the fact he was in possession of a pike. This was a 13-inch blade, which, when the time came, would be attached to a long pole, making it a lethal weapon. He would try and claim it was a tool of his trade, given he was a slater, but this still didn't explain what the hell he was doing with it at 4am in the morning. Indeed, Martin's rebellion, which was about to come to an end, in many ways summarised the entire 1848 rebellion. The government were, to a certain extent, in control of the rebels who were disorganised and, in general, uncertain about what to do. However, for Martin, surrounded by soldiers at 4am on that Sunday morning, he was unquestionably in serious trouble, but his reaction gives an insight into those heady days about how rebels like him felt. After being arrested and knowing he was going to face prison, rather than adopt a penitent approach, he was defiant. He challenged the soldiers and policemen present, saying that he could fight them two at a time and beat them. Later, as he was being led away, he met another man on the dark road who asked Martin why he had been arrested, to which he admitted he had the pike and said, There's no use to deny it. I had it to gain the rights of my country and I'll die for it. For many, who like Martin would take up weapons in the coming days, 
This romantic vision of rebellion was central to how they understood 1848. It was certainly far removed from the brutality that had followed the 1798 rebellion. Martin was thrown in jail awaiting a trial, but perhaps in the cold light of day, surrounded by bare stone walls, his romanticism lost its edge. While he was going to receive a prison sentence at his trial, worse could well be in store for him. Prison was an extremely dangerous place for a rebel to find himself in the late summer of 1848. Ireland stood on the precipice of a rebellion and, if there was a wave of repression like that which had followed the 1798 rebellion, Martin could easily find himself at the end of a noose. He was very much dependent now on events outside the jail because, like John Mitchell, his active role was over. But unlike Mitchell, who was in Bermuda, Martin could easily get caught up in the counter-revolution. The following day of Monday, July the 24th, events grew even more tense in Ireland as habeas corpus was suspended. This now meant people could be arrested without trial. Still the leaders were prevaricating about a rebellion. Finally, in the last days of July, the young Irelanders decided they had to press ahead, feeling if they didn't act soon, they would all be in prison. But already they were on the back foot. The government was seriously undermining the young Irelanders by arresting large numbers of leading figures just like what had happened with Martin Ryan. Furthermore, the Catholic Church was utterly opposed to any rebellion and the Catholic priests up and down the country were telling their own parishioners not to get involved. Unsurprisingly, John O'Connell also condemned any potential uprising. Nevertheless, they pushed ahead with a plan for the rising. It was due to start in Kilkenny. This was designed to draw out some of the Dublin garrison maintaining the peace in the capital city. After this then, the young Irelanders there could rise up. However, from the outset, these plans were clearly problematic. After it became clear that there was not enough support in Kilkenny, they had to move the starting point to Tipperary. William Smith O'Brien and most of the leaders, while still at large, were now wanted men. Even still though, they seemed to continually prevaricate. After assembling a large crowd of 2,000 people in Carrigan Shore, they then bizarrely sent them home. Eventually the leading figures met at a place called Ballingarry in rural Tipperary but what transpired there was a rising in name only given how disastrous it was. It was certainly not worthy of the movement that had created it. As a few thousand assembled and William Smith O'Brien took command he proved completely unable to comprehend the task at hand. He could not break from his background as a wealthy landlord and even told the rebels not to cut down trees unless they had asked the owner's permission first. Felling trees was a way to block roads and delay the military. O'Brien also insisted the rebels should pay for everything they took. He even alerted a local mining operator he was about to launch a rebellion to put him at ease. The mine owner unsurprisingly informed the police. These steps are utterly bizarre for a man who's about to launch an insurrection against the government. Initially they did have 2,000 men and women gathered at Ballingarry but these numbers fell away to about 300 who were poorly armed with farm implements and about 30 guns. They were initially attacked by a troop of about 46 policemen who were fired on and started to retreat. O'Brien and his followers gave pursuit. The police eventually reached the house of a woman called the Widow McCormack and they took shelter in her home. The rising now descended into an utter farce. One of the rebels threw a stone and this seems to have begun a firefight during which William Smith O'Brien was injured and it wasn't long before police reinforcements arrived and the rising that almost never began was at an end with all the leaders going on the run. This is in many ways extraordinary. 
Months of planning, years of activism had gone into this and it was all over before it began. I'm sure you're at home listening, wondering, is that it? And more or less, that is the extent of the 1848 rebellion. While the word rebellion might be a strong term to describe what had happened and it would become known as the battle in Widow McCormick's cabbage patch, we have to ask why did it fail so badly, given the movement it developed from was far bigger and much, much more impressive. Firstly, we cannot underestimate the impact of the famine. While it radicalised many of the young Irelanders, it was ultimately a rebellion built on sand. The wider population was far too emaciated to fight the British Empire and only a small minority were involved in the debates that had led to this situation. Most were focused on survival after the summer of 1846. However, that said, the rebellion was doomed from the outset due to other reasons as well. The planning was clearly chaotic. As we have seen, most of the young Irelanders were somewhat reticent revolutionaries. They had been radicalised in a relatively short period of time and were not in agreement of the ultimate goals of the rebellion. They had made little or no attempt to procure weapons, leaving the likes of Martin Ryan to fashion pikes, a weapon that, while more effective than it might seem, would have also been at home on a medieval battlefield and certainly it was no match for the British army on the island in the late 1840s. They also faced major obstacles in organising. The resistance of the Catholic Church was a major factor. They were able to rein in the highly influential and militant priest and young Irelander, Father John Kenyon, and supporter of the insurrection, who did not participate after being warned not to by his church. The aftermath of the rebellion was a disaster, with most of the senior members being arrested in the following days and weeks. Soon, Clamell Jail, where Martin Ryan was being held, began to fill up with some of the Young Ireland movement's most illustrious figures, including William Smith O'Brien, Thomas Francis Marr and Terence Bellew McManus, who had travelled from Liverpool to participate in the rebellion. But the movement, which had moved Ireland to the brink of a rebellion, had quickly collapsed. In the coming weeks and months, those arrested were tried before the courts and they received severe sentences. To conclude this show, I'm going to look at a few of the people involved in the Young Ireland movement because I feel it would be remiss not to mention what happened to them and where their lives in the aftermath of the rebellion took them because while some of these are important and celebrated figures in Ireland, they are somewhat notorious in other parts of the world. William Smith O'Brien, the landlord and MP, was found guilty at his trial and exiled to Tasmania where he spent several years. He was eventually released but banned from ever entering the United Kingdom which then included Ireland. He settled in Brussels where he would die in 1864. While William Smith O'Brien is generally favourably remembered, most histories neglect the fact that he was implicated in what would be called a child abuse scandal while in Tasmania. While he was never charged, there was substantial evidence against him. John Mitchell, after being found guilty in May 1848, was first sent to Bermuda. Although he was treated as a special status prisoner, he suffered appallingly in the heat of Bermuda due to his asthma. From there, he was transferred to Tasmania. He escaped to the USA in 1853, where he settled and continued his journalism. However, in the USA, Mitchell used his pen to support the most notorious of causes. While he was a central figure in the 1848 rebellion, John Mitchell was a virulent, unapologetic racist who supported slavery in the United States. When the US Civil War broke out, he moved to Richmond and was a vocal supporter of the US Confederacy throughout the war. Two of his sons were killed fighting for that same confederacy and he himself was briefly imprisoned at the end of the war when he moved to New York. Other exiles chose the opposing side in the US Civil War. 
Thomas Francis Marr, also found guilty, was transported to Tasmania. From there, he, along with several others, escaped to the USA. Marr became the Brigadier General of the famous Irish Brigade of the Union Army in the American Civil War. However, his story has its own dark chapters. After the war, he was to the fore of attacks on Native Americans in Montana. Like many of his fellow young Irelanders, they were unable to see the parallels between the suffering of people in Ireland and other parts of the world. Marr died somewhat mysteriously, falling from a steamer on the River Missouri. He was never found, nor what exactly happened to him was ever adequately explained. Michael Doheny evaded capture after the rebellion and escaped to the USA. He would remain an active Irish Republican all his life. He was instrumental in founding the Fenians and founded its sister organisation in the USA, Clonan and Wales. Finally, last but not least, Martin Ryan, while undoubtedly disappointed by the failure of the rebellion, the fact that it flopped possibly saved his life. Had he been inside Clonmel jail and a major rebellion broken out, he could well have been killed or sentenced to death in the inevitable wave of retribution that would have followed. His trial was held on August 2nd, a few days after the rebellion. He was found guilty and sentenced to two years hard labour. He was released early under orders from the Lord Lieutenant on February 2nd, 1849. Martin, however, returned now to an Ireland still in the grip of famine. Blight had returned in the summer of 1848, condemning Ireland to at least another year of famine. In the next podcast, we will look at this failure of the crop in 1848 and follow the story into 1849. However, for Christmas, I'm taking a break from the story of the famine and I'm going to be bringing you a two-part special on one of my favourite topics. That's the Kilkenny Witchcraft Trial of 1324. That's a two-part series that's coming out in the coming weeks. So stay tuned. And until next time, Sloan. Sloan.